This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning, good morning. Hope everyone is well. Go ahead and get that healthy. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see you this morning. See, I had to see you. I, you know, it was just a little weird looking into a dark room, you know. So, uh, uh, but anyhow, hey, good to see you this morning. So we are at this point, uh, we're uh, now into the full, you know, time. Uh, it's what, what we call Lent, uh, which, you know, just means February. If you didn't know that, that's literally what the word Lent means. It's just the month of February. And so we're, uh, we're well into Lent, uh, that whole season, the 40 days, ramping up to uh, Easter, uh, which also, the word Easter just simply means the first. Uh, that's, it's not, no, it's not named after some pagan god or something like that or an island or anything. It literally just means the first. It means the beginning, the beginning of the calendar uh, from an old word, oyster. And uh, so it just, uh, we, here we are, we're moving steadily toward the celebration of the resurrection. And so as it so happens, we are also now on the downhill, the second half of the Gospel of Mark. So from here, uh, we're building to a crescendo, leading to the cross, leading to the resurrection, uh, and it will be the primary focus as we go forward from here uh, throughout the book. The book, literally the first half, is all built on, uh, on is, is pointing toward the mystery of who Jesus is. It's ex- uh, pointing to the mystery of the kingdom, the unique way in which the kingdom is in face of all the kingdoms of the world. And so from here, uh, we'll continue to hang on to those things, but the force of the, the uh, movement of the text is going to be hurtling toward that whole thing of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so literally the whole second half uh, of this book, letter, however you want to describe it, is all about that, those last weeks of Jesus' life leading up to uh, the resurrection as the central point of what uh, you know, Mark is trying to tell us. So today we're in chapter 9. Uh, and let me just kind of remind you of some things, as I said from the beginning, um, that this gospel is not written chronologically. That's going to really come into play again today uh, as we think about those things. Now, over the next few weeks, it will play a little bit less because uh, as we go through uh, chapters 10 uh, through 16, and we're heading toward those, as we're in the last week's there'll be a lot more chronology that'll just kind of naturally occur even as it's written thematically. Um, but uh, specifically, remember that up to this point, it hasn't been that way, and so we're going to see that come into play some today. Uh, also keep in mind, you know, that uh, in terms of this biography that we really want to, you know, continue to hang on to that sense of that a mystery is being solved, something is being explained, revealed a little at a time, and it's going to be even more so resolve, you know, resolved as we look at these declarations that Jesus will be making about the end, his end of his earthly ministry and about what is to come. And so those hints will be dropped left and right 
uh, you know, and uh, only, you know, the most dense, which apparently is all of us, uh, will have a hard time catching on, you know, and it's just, it's the funny thing about it. We, it, once you've read through it and you know it, you just think, why doesn't everybody just, you know, like, why didn't they get that? Why didn't the disciples get that, you know? And it's really easy to kind of feel that way in retrospect, you know, what's that old saying? I think it's almost gone out of use because of the last 2020, but, um, Hindsight is 2020. You know, you look back and everything seems perfectly clear now, although most of us would look back on 2020 and still say, yeah, I don't know, what what would you call that? But anyhow, nonetheless, even though the saying has lost some of its emphasis, it's uh, still very true that we always see better, you know, looking back through things than we see in the moment that we're going through them. So, nonetheless here, uh, last week, chapter 8, I mentioned was the epicenter of Mark, both literally and figuratively, uh, looking at from a literary standpoint, the storyline, but also it's literally the center of the text in terms of its length and the open declaration of that passage that Jesus is Messiah and bearer of the kingdom uh, draws to a, 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 a head from here the theme really focuses in on the suffering servant. If you think in terms of like in Isaiah, there is a lot said about the suffering servant. Uh, some of the passages in the Psalms that talk about uh, the you know, suffering servant on the cross, counting his bones, being able to see those things. And again, as you and I uh, look backward from here at those Psalms, they seem very clear. Uh, but at the time, they were veiled in mystery because they didn't understand what was being said, why it was being said. Uh, there was speculation, uh, but uh, many of those psalms that we now think of as messianic were not necessarily thought of messianic in tradition. So we have some verses that we're pulling from and we're noting that he quotes that are those messianic verses that were very understood by the larger Jewish community in terms of the revelation of Messiah, that Messiah was coming. But there's also passages that you and I would look back on today and say, well, clearly that's talking about the Messiah, but that the people in Jesus' day would have never made any connection and really could not understand uh, what those passages were about until it was all uh, brought together uh, in the final revelation of Jesus. So, uh, we, we look at all those things, we're seeing these things take place, and they will begin to you know, solidify more and more as we wrap up this book. So with that shift in the storyline, the second half, like I said, leads us to the cross, leads us to the resurrection. So with that said, let's jump into chapter 9 this morning. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. Again, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. Please follow along whatever translation is in your lap. That's obviously my favorite today because you're reading it. And if you're using a phone or tablet, please do us all the favor of set that to silent, including for yourself. Uh, I think you'll be glad that you did. Mark 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were all talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one of, 
for each of you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, and they were terrified, you know, hoof and mouth disease here. And a, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one that they had, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept those matters to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he would suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you, the Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, the scribes arguing with them, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone in the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help me with my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to, this, to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Then he went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. When they came to Capernaum, he was in the house and he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put them in their midst. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives not just me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we just saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. And truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of cold water to you because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame with two feet than to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So the opening paragraph obviously has Jesus with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. We see that happening quite often. There's times where the the three of them are alone with uh, Jesus. It's his inner circle. Of course, for some people that immediately causes some consternation. The idea that Jesus would have an inner circle sometimes can be off-putting to people in a world of where we think everything has to be exactly fair, the same, etc., And yet, what we see actually is just kind of some healthy boundaries we all need relationally, right? I mean, there are uh, people who are just naturally closer to us and others. And so as we love the whole body of Christ, the reality is that you cannot possibly give the same time and attention to everyone. That's just not realistic. And so uh, there is this special connection between Peter, James, and John uh, that we see just repeatedly occurring. it points, if you will, even to the humanity of Jesus, does it not? That, you know, uh, though God is able to pay attention to all of us equally in his humanity, there was, there was just simply a limit. And we have to be reminded that both of those things are true of Jesus, fully divine and yet fully human. And this was one of the limits. In particular, it was these three that he trusted in his inner circle. Now, If you were with us last weekend, you may remember that I pointed out that this whole experience uh, of what we call often the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus takes the disciples up and uh, they are given this very limited experience, uh, just the three of them where they get to see him uh, transfigured, uh, uh, just glowing, and then there appears Moses uh, and Elijah and um, uh, this uh, moment of, you know, Peter just kind of, you know, typical Peter kind of switching one foot for the other to put in his mouth. And um, uh, I love Peter. I mean, I, that's, not a, that's not an insult. I, I, you know, it's, it's the reality that he is, he is passionate and he is excited about what's happening. It also says he was terrified. Do you think you might be terrified if you were to see your friend suddenly transfigured and glowing and that other uh, uh, these you know other beings are suddenly there appear on the mountain and you don't know are they physical are they are they phantoms what what 
what's happening, right? I mean, the cloud is surrounding you. I, I just want you to think for just a moment just in your mind's eye, if you would, you know, instead of just kind of reading through it and kind of glancing through it, just dwell there for just a moment of how potentially terrifying the moment could be, how exciting at the same time. So here's this uh, moment that takes place there in verses 27 to 28, and, and uh, you know, they, they're trying to uh, articulate what's happening. So if you will remember uh, last week, if you were with us, if you weren't, let me encourage you to go back over um, chapter 8, and, and you can see there uh, where the discussion ensues just before Peter's confession of Jesus as being the, the Messiah, the Christ. And he says, who do people say that I am? And so they said, well, some say the prophet, others say Elijah, uh, and, and there's this whole thing of they're trying to figure it out. Some say John the Baptist came back from the dead. That was what the Herodians were saying. Uh, it, it will address that, you know, uh, repeatedly of uh, that Herod's fear about that. And Herod was literally going around telling people that that's who Jesus was. Uh, a lot be just because of the guilt that he was feeling over his role in, uh, in John the Baptist's death. But nonetheless, um, uh, the reason all of this like happens, uh, you've got to understand, is that there is uh, this thing that I, I spoke about uh, last week briefly, what we call the Moses-Elijah Revividus. Uh, it's a fancy word in theology to say Moses and Elijah again. And so a common thing that happened, uh, especially over the exile, and they were getting ready, they wanted Messiah to come and deliver them from all of their troubles. When they came back to the land and they were waiting for God to restore the kingdom, and yet it's kind of like happening in a way, but it's not happening, right? The kings of the earth have paid, they've spent money, you know, King Darius and others spent money to restore uh, the city walls of Jerusalem to restore the temple in Jerusalem. But it is a mere shadow of what it had been. Uh, Herod, in an effort to show that he thought he was the Messiah, basically rebuilt the temple as it was sta standing. He just kind of refurbished it. But you know, like kind of like people refurbish houses at the beach. You know, they buy some little crummy house at the beach and they can't get a permit to tear the whole thing down, so they tear down one room and then they build something much larger, and then they tear down that other old room, and then they build something much larger, and before long, like this little bitty house that was like kind of crummy on the beach, suddenly is this gilded mansion on the beach, and they never, you know, had a permit to do it. Anyhow, uh, so you know nothing about what I'm talking about. Anyhow, so, uh, you know, uh, uh, Herod had been doing that, you know, rebuilding the temple, uh, trying to gather glory to himself. But there was this understanding going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 to 20 there, uh, in which uh, the, Moses is telling about his successor, uh, that he would be raised up from among their brethren and that he would do the same and even greater miracles. And so this expectation of this what was then called the great seal of the prophets. And so that was clearly understood in its day to be Joshua. 
Uh, but then later, uh, revisiting that in the time of Elijah and Elisha, uh, people began to ascribe that great seal of the prophets to Elijah uh, and then to Elisha and fulfillment of those things. And then, you know, uh, po- uh, you know be- just before exile, we have the prophets referencing the Elijah, like in Micah, who would come and turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children preparing the way for Messiah. They're referencing all of this. So there's this, there's, this is not just come, some kind of fluke, off the hand, off the cuff kind of thing that the scribes are, are talking about or that the disciples are concerned about. Uh, like this is deep-rooted, foundational understanding of what Messiah was, who He was, how He was coming, what His power and authority would be. They're plucking those verses out and they are looking at them and they're thinking of them specifically in context of things that are affecting their lives. And they are trying to interpret those things in the midst of their experience. Kind of like every latest book on you know, the end times that comes out every time we have a war, right? Then we get about 15 books published that are all telling us the way the end is going to come, and then they get put on the sale she- you know, uh, shelf the next, a couple of weeks later because it has nothing to do with what's happening now. And so, listen, it was only things moving much slower, and there was a lot more time and tradition built up over those things. And so they're saying, listen, there's all these verses, there's all these things talking about this. And so God answers them. I love the way, you know, it's funny, like you could just like listen to God or you can listen to, yeah, okay. So, uh, and here in this moment, they're standing there and Moses and Elijah appear. Now, if you'll remember, uh, if you're familiar with the stories, if you're not, let me fill you in. Uh, Moses was not seen to die. He went up on the mountainside, looked into the promised land, and everybody went into the promised land without him. Later, Jude talks about that the devil and the archangel wrestling over his physical body after he passed away. No one, there's no tomb of Moses to go visit. In the case of Elijah, he is ascends on the whirlwind in a flaming chariot. Very exciting. And so neither one of these guys died. And so the revividus, the story of them coming back, it was like, well, maybe they were the same person. Moses and Elijah, like Elijah was just Moses all over again. You know? And then, so then it became, well, maybe the Elijah is the great seal of prophets, and the great seal of prophets is going to appear again, and that's who the Messiah is. And so there's this whole lore that has built up around it that continues to be a centerpiece of Muslim theology today about Muhammad. It's all built around that whole uh, misunderstanding of the Elijah and the prophet and all that kind of stuff. And And so here in the midst of it, like they're standing there and Moses is there, Elijah is there. And what does Peter want to do? He wants to give equal homage to all three, right? Because that's what his tradition has taught him. That's what his understanding up to this point has taught him. Even though he has made this great confession, chapter 8, but remember right on the heels of that, that's also when he got called Satan, you know, so, you know, you ever notice that? Like you have those spiritual highs and those lows just seem to be all too close together. Anyhow, uh, you know, uh, uh, do not kid yourself. When you have a spiritual high, be on your guard. Right? The enemy doesn't just wait 
for when you're hungry in the desert. The enemy many times will wait until you're on your spiritual high and think yourself invulnerable and take your feet out from under you like he did to Elijah. Hello? We are not ignorant of his schemes, brethren. And so the reality is here in the midst of this, uh, uh, Peter now is, is kind of you know, uh, making this declaration, we're going to make these three tabernacles, we're going to give each one, uh, you know, uh, their proper due, and the voice of heaven, just like at Jesus' baptism, ascends from the heavens and it says, this is my son. Listen to him. He is making it clear that, the, 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 that everything that the prophets have said, everything that, is, that, that there is a culmination that is coming together in Jesus, and that furthermore, He is not just one of the great prophets. He is not just, He is the very Son of God. There is something very distinct, very different. Uh, he's bringing this to a, a, a specific head. The voice of the Father. That's not a testimony of men. Remember what He said to, G, to Peter was, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Now they are standing in the presence of the Father. They don't even know it. They don't see Him. They see Moses and Elijah. And, and in that moment, like He says, you listen to My Son, not the traditions, not your theology, not listen to My Son. And in a moment, like, it's all gone. They're, they're in bewilderment. And there is Jesus standing before them. It's very, a very a, a powerful moment. And then Mark, as master storyteller, remember I said he's, he's not telling these things chronologically. Uh, he is specifically putting these things together in such a way so we have Peter's confession and then we go up to the mountaintop. We are going there literally, but we're also going there metaphorically. We are hitting the crescendo of the entire book. Right There is this, these statements being made about who Jesus is and now they have seen, they've been to the mountaintop and they see, they, they know what, it, what is true, what is right. And now they must descend the mountain. Because you don't live there. Have you figured that part out about walking with Jesus? That most of life is spent down in the valley, not on the high mountain peaks. And when you try to sustain that, it, it, not only is it impossible to do, but it's actually not what you and I are called to do. You, you can't fulfill the Great Commission from the mountaintop. You can't love one another from the mountaintop. We can love Him. We can adore Him. We can come to understand many things on the mountaintop, but we don't live there. Now, they come down the mountain. It really doesn't say a whole lot about the mountain coming down the mountain. We don't know like the journey, how long it took or anything else. Uh, but um, there is... Uh, you know, very much this, you know, sense in which as they, as they come down the mountain that they immediately, you know, are uh, finding out uh, what's happened. Uh, uh, you know, the other disciples have remained behind 
And, uh, and so from the mountaintop down to the valley, down to where the people are, down to where the majority of the disciples are, this is literal, but it is also very figurative. He, there's an image that he is trying to drive deep into our minds, our hearts of this experience of encountering you know, God and, uh, and in, 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 in the world in which we live. And so here we come into the situation and the scribes and the disciples are arguing, and a crowd has gathered and is listening to them argue. Let that really sink in for just a moment. Because at stake, a little boy is suffering while they're arguing. It's not just coincidental. While the religious people argue, the lost suffer. As Jesus approached, the beget demon begins to manifest because of the presence of the Lord, you know, and, and in the midst of all of this, you know, uh, here's this demon that's abused the boy, even tried to kill him. And, and from all of the interaction between the scribes and the disciples and everyone else, the dad is at wit's end disappointed by his interaction with those who were supposed to be the religious leaders and the disciples of Jesus. And so he says in a very pointed, if you can, if you can. At which point Jesus tell him, all things are possible for him who believes. Can I be, point out to you that this is a whole lot less directed at dad and much more directed at disciples and the scribes. But mostly at his own disciples. See, in the midst of all their arguing, they've sowed doubt and unbelief, and the, the child's continued to suffer. And when we fight and fuss over doctrines between denominations and believers, or procedures, or methodologies, the world watches. They do not see one another love. They see infighting. They see contemptible behavior and it sows it stirs unbelief they don't care who's more doctrinally pure all they know is that they're suffering and your bickering doesn't do anything to solve the problem but moreover listen from here forward in Mark's gospel, from the crescendo of the, tra of the transfiguration to coming down the mountain, it's also very, very symbolic because everything is about to get really, really hard. The disciples have had it relatively easy up to now. They've, 
the, the, the uh, attacks have been few, the arguments have been limited to just exchange of words, oh, that we might be so inconvenienced that somebody might disagree with us, you know, and, and so, you know, we, we've got to fix that, you know, I mean, we can't have anyone think differently, talk differently, disagree with us. Uh, wow, that's, it's been terrible up to now, but hey, it's going to get a whole lot worse. <laughs> Afterwards, Jesus' disciples, they want to know why they could not cast out the demon. And he tells them, this kind comes out by prayer. Now, before you rush, please do not reduce Jesus' words to a formula. On these kind of demons you cast out, and these kind of demons you pray out, and these kind of, and we categorize demons. Please do not do that. Okay, first of all, you're, you're, you're like, one, you're pulling scriptures way out of context. Way out of context. You've got to do real violence to the text to come up with categories like that. Second of all, listen to the point. Up to now, they've repeatedly done it one way. Right? They've repeatedly done it one way. And now they found out there are demons who don't respond to the way that they've always done it. Imagine that. That there could like, be a change in the situation. That the enemy would adjust to your tactics. That the enemy would, is seeking about roar, like a roaring lion those to devour. And, and we're called not to be ignorant of his schemes. To not be foolish. To not be bait for the enemy. Right? That we're supposed to be aware. That we're supposed to be continually seeking our Father and knowing his heart and asking him, Lord, what are you doing in this situation? Not what is my formula doing in this situation? And why is it my formula working? And why is it my methodology working, right? We come back again afresh to ask the Holy Spirit, what are you doing in this situation? It's true of every healing. It's true of every casting out of every demon. It's true in every situation of your life. There's this deep need to be in closer communion with God, to hear His heart, to know what He's doing. And in that moment, you and I are supposed to realize that things do not get easier from here. Right? When we look at the great discourses that Jesus gives, like on the end of the age, which you and I are living in and have been living in since Jesus' resurrection, right? in the end of times, He said, listen, it will be a travail like a woman in birth. And so if you've ever been around uh, that before, or even if you haven't, if you've ever even been around an animal that's in birth, you know that the travail increases as the child's delivery gets closer, right? I mean, it doesn't, just, it doesn't just stay the same. You know, those little contractions start a little bit here, and then they grow a little bit more, and then they grow a little bit more, and somewhere along those lines, your wife grabs your face to try to pull it off your head and says, I want morphine. No, uh, I don't know. No, actually, Dawn didn't use anything. She was crazy. Anyhow, I mean, amazing, amazing. That's what I, the word I was trying to think of. Um, and, uh, you know, but listen, the travail increases, right? And like, so there's, there's more that we would expect. Uh, we don't expect things to stay the same. They, they don't get easier. They get tougher. And, and, and so we find ourselves even in negotiating the day and times in which we live in and trying to figure our way through it. And we can spend all of our energy on 
prophecy trying to predict it, or you and I could delve deep in the heart of God, let those prophecies point us toward the fact that these things do happen, and we could actually spend our heart and time and energy on listening to the voice of God about responding in that moment, in that age, bringing truth and light to bear, to reason. We could talk about what it means for us as the people of God to be the people of God so that we look like the people of God instead of doing everything the way the world does it or just responding to the world. See, there's a whole lot more here that I hope we would get out of rather than just writing 25-cent books to put on the closeout sale after the war is over. There's real danger when we try to marry the Word of God to the spirit of the age, even if we do it under the guise of prophecy. Be careful. And don't reduce the Word of God to a formula. They need to be in closer communion with God. They are needing to come into alignment with the Father and the pushback from the kingdom of darkness, right? It's, in, it's just happening. Like the kingdoms of this world are shoving back. They're fighting back. They're adjusting their schemes. They're adjusting their schedule. They're thinking through things. They, that, listen, the enemy is smart. But God is smarter. But can I just point out to you, just in the nicest way, please don't hear this in an insulting way, because I, I have to be reminded of this all the time, okay? So it's not like... The enemy is smarter than you and me. He's been around a long time. He has been watching humanity for millennia. Trust me. When the Word says there's nothing new under the sun, there really isn't anything new under the sun. And so, the expectations and the adjustment to what we're doing, enemy's smart. It's doing a good job in many ways of making a fool of us right now in the public scene. Not because... He's smarter than God, not because God is taken by surprise, but, but if we spend all of our time hunkered down in fear, writing books about eschatology, instead of engaging the lost, instead of being the church, you'll continue to make fool of us. So here they are, they're right in the thick of it, and the road is very much uphill from there, all the way to the cross, all the way to the final return of Jesus. But in terms of this book, this letter right here, that, that's where it's all leading, right? It's leading to the cross, and it's making the specific point that it is an uphill from here, and everything that's going to happen is going to get increasingly more difficult through the end of the letter, the conflicts, the, the everything. This is going to move from word wars to wanting to kill people, wanting to destroy people, and destroy everything about them, even when they see signs and wonders. 
See, signs and wonders, they win a lot of people, but they don't win everybody. Some people want to destroy you even more. Spiritual battles don't get easier just because you live in America. Then we drop down to verse 30, and on cue, Mark tells us again that the cross is is coming, and, and it reminds us that Jesus must suffer, and by association, his disciples likewise must do the same and die to themselves. It is a hard road from here. It is not the convenient Christianity. It's not spectator spirituality. We're called to engage in a life where we are literally dying to ourselves, our ways, our understanding of the world, uh, just like those early disciples, right? I mean, in the midst of it, even their, their religious traditions had to like die down so they could hear of the voice of Jesus, so they could be obedient to Him instead of just going after whatever it was that they'd been taught for tradition. And, and about washing of hands and out, outward behaviors and everything else. Instead, he's calling them to this place where they're going to those people who they had rejected, right? They're going to the Gentiles. They're going to the Samaritans. They're going to the harlots. They're going to the tax collectors. They're finding themselves intermingling in a world that they had no idea of, of which they had separated themselves, of which they had washed their hands to the point that they thought that sin wouldn't enter their bodies, that they would never be unclean. Jesus is reminding them it's not what comes from outside that will make you unclean. It's from what comes inside that will make you unclean. And so our greatest danger isn't what's on the TV, but what's in here when we turn on the TV. Right? You, you want to know what's in here? Look at where you park yourself on the TV. It's not that they're going to change the laws of the land. It's what do you do when they change the land, the laws of the land? Do you join in because now it's legal? Is really the only defining line of what's good and right and just, legal or Illegal? Are we, are we more righteous to stand on the outside and publicly decry bad behavior while we behave exactly the same? So his disciples are looking to this whole thing of dying to self. But clearly the disciples don't get it. Verse 33, they begin this discourse with one another. They're on the way and they're talking in the background about who's going to be the greatest, who's the most amazing. You know, I, I, you can just kind of picture it because anytime you just get a group of guys together, like that's coming up somewhere, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, oh my goodness. So Jesus tells them again, Our way, my way, the kingdom way is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's not about power. It's not about might. It's not about lording over. Our way is more akin to this. And he pulls a child into his lap and tells them, ask them, how does one receive a child? Now, move beyond your 
kind of church mentality, and I just want you to think for just a moment, like, you receive a child, but not because of what he brings to the table. Right? What does a child bring? Maybe joy, maybe heartache. What, is a chi- what does a child bring to the table? Now, we make room for a child not because of what they bring to the table. We receive a child to care for them. We receive a child to show unconditional love to them. We provide for them, right? Like we are, we, we, we upside down our lives. I mean, nothing will beat the selfishness out of you like having a child. Either that or you will abandon the child. And we're seeing a lot of that in our society. But reality is when you have a child, like it just, it guts you, it turns you upside down. I found myself giving up food. You laugh, but I'm telling you, like, I love my food, okay? Uh, you know, and I can just tell you that, uh, like, when my, you know, I, I, my oldest son, on purpose now, like he's in his 30s, right? And one of his favorite things to do now is that, like, to give me special food items and to spend money on me simply because he's able to now. And he says, Dad, I just remember how many times when I was a growing kid and I would go for that last portion or whatever, and you always offered it. Like you never argued. You always offered it. And he said, I just knew that there was something different because I'd been to other people's homes and Dad always got the last Dad always got the biggest steak, the biggest whatever. And he says, and I saw that like you were making sure that we were taken care of first. You oftentimes left the table hungry. I know because you went back into a cabinet and found some chips or something. I knew you were hungry, but I knew I came first. I knew my siblings came first. I don't say that to you to try to pat myself on the back. I just want to make the point, listen, It was beating the selfish out of me because I can tell you what I wanted to do. Here, kid, give me that sandwich and that sandwich over here and, you know, you're not really eating on that thing and give that over here to me. I was hungry. I bet you've been hungry like that too where your children got the last and the best. How do we receive a child? We're all called to receive others on those terms, not on the basis of power, but specifically because they need care, love, kindness, mercy, etc. How we engage the world? Like a child. Not like our enemies. Like a child who's been abandoned. Jesus' own words, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as abandoned That's how he saw the world. When the world delved deep into sin, he didn't say, those filthy, rotten sinners. He looked at them and he says, look at those who've been abandoned. Look at those who have been the victims, who've been tormented, who've been thrown into the fire, who the enemies tried to drown. So the, invi- the invitation to you and me is, is, is literally like the, we look not just at some child or our children 
or the immediacy of our fellowship or something, but we look and we see the world through the eyes of the Father. Children who need to be received, not beat down, not defeated. Verse 36 brings us to the worry of the disciples. But, but, but listen, listen, there's other people who are doing things in Jesus' name. Do you, yeah, and do you remember what I said last week about the economy of God versus the economy of the world? The economy of the world is built on scarcity. The economy of the kingdom of God is built on abundance. The world expects that if you use it up, it runs out. We are on the other end. That's what supply and demand are all about. We live in the world of where there is always more. In fact, it stirs up more so that whenever we pray for the sick and people are healed, it stirs up more people to be healed, more people to be delivered. When we see deliverance, it stirs up faith and it causes people to believe and there's more of those, those kind of deliverances. There's more of the kingdom of God breaking in. When we lead someone to salvation, like they tend to lead other people to salvation. One of the things that we do in the church is we isolate ourselves. We get to where we don't know any lost people and we wonder why we can't reach anybody because we don't know anybody we've isolated ourselves and made ourselves safe can i suggest if you want safe you should try another faith this faith calls us to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel that includes your schedule and every other resource that you have at your fingertips. This is not safe. Not real Christianity. I, I see it that, like the invitation of Jesus is like that of Darkwing Duck. Let's get dangerous. If you don't know who Darkwing Duck is, yeah, YouTube it. You, you, you didn't really miss anything. It's just a funny quote, so... The kingdom of God is unlimited in power, resources, and scope. There's enough for the Jew and the Gentile. You give away the kingdom, you don't have less, you have more. If you pray for healing for others, you see more healing in your life. If you give away your life, your money, your time, your knowledge, and you just keep getting more, it's the generosity of the kingdom, it's the economy of the kingdom. You give to get, to give, to give again. In that way, there's always enough. So then let us remember Jesus, James, John, Peter came down the mountain and they found those disciples arguing with the scribes and the crowd and the dad of the demons, possessed boy, all, everybody's losing faith, they're all infighting. And the world perishes because of internal debates. They're looking for a unified witness that is our great love for one another. They're being abused by the kingdom of darkness while we squabble. Let me say this really clearly. I'm not saying that doctrinal differences don't matter at all. I'm saying let's have our family, our private family discussions in private, not in public. Not on Facebook. Not in forums. Let's don't present all of our doctrinal concerns to our neighbor who's going to the church down the street instead of our church because, well, I'm worried that that... Stop it. Love them. 
celebrate that they're moving toward the eternal Christ. Celebrate that the Holy Spirit is more capable of leading them than your neighbor or your other church friend is of deceiving them. Let's have robust debates. Let's contend for truth, but just not in front of a weary and dying world. And that brings us to the end of the chapter. Jesus' concern for the little ones, you know, and once again, the child's the illustration, and I'm certainly, you know, he, he, he would never cause a child to stumble. I'm certain that he, they, they would never cause a child to stumble. But listen, I'm equally certain that the repeated use of children throughout the text is meant to be a contrast between the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom. Especially when we look at the verse following about plucking out our eyes and cutting off our hands rather than continuing to sin. As Jesus said before, it's not your mouth, your lips, that lead to defilement when you eat that food. It's not your eye that causes you to sin. It's not your hand that causes you to sin. We sin because of what's in us. And the heart of it always goes back to the heart. As we look forward from chapter 9 to chapter 15, leading us to the cross, again and again, you and I will get this message that this is serious business and that a big part of doing the serious business and of the increasing sense of tension and difficulty and hardship that is the kingdom of God moving forward in the world also puts us in a place where we are in deeper need of great intimacy with God and of a sense of just being very you know, attuned to His heart, to His personhood. To listen to His voice. Because even as we're discovering who Jesus is and was, even as we're learning what the kingdom of God is and is not, even as we are discovering the difference between God's kingdom and the kingdom of men, even as we're adding in first the Samaritans and then the Gentiles and then growing our view of who can come, we are also understanding that following Jesus is not just mental assent. It is not being born of a certain race. It is not about being religious or repeatedly doing certain activities. It is a wholesale life change. And before this gospel is done, spoiler alert, before this gospel is done, it's going to ask you to give up your life for His. That, my friends, is the real invitation Come, let us go with him and die. It's not very seeker-friendly, is it? But it is the message. So how do we respond? How do we respond? Are we ready to give up everything to follow Jesus? Are we ready to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others? That's really what it is, isn't it? I mean, laying down our lives is not just laying down your life for Jesus. It's actually about laying down your life for the sake of others. For the children of the world. 
I know the gospel cannot be earned. That's what we mean when we say it's the free gift of God. You can't earn it. But I do not want to give you the false impression that it asks nothing of you. That would be misleading. The king in the kingdom asks everything. And in return, give you everything. So the invitation isn't a selfish come and get it. It's a come and get it to give it away. And in so doing, we abundantly find our life beyond all that you ever thought or imagined. Let's stand together. You know, as I continue to um, read in the Word of God and study, as I continue to do life with Jesus and the community of faith, the church, I have this ever-increasing sense that though there's, we can enjoy like modernized music and you know, the, uh, the use of video screens and things like that. We use technology. We jump in airplanes and fly to the other side of the world to bring hope, the message of the gospel, travel in cars. It's not an anti-technology. It's not an anti-modernism message. But at the same time, it is a message to, to redig the wells, to go back to the ancient fountains and find that there is no better way that for us to do life in this modern age than the very way that Jesus laid out for us about what it means to be his disciples and that how we pass the gospel from disciple to disciple, that no matter how much we can uh, modernize things in terms of technology, that the reality is, is that we make disciples one at a time and we do so by pouring our lives into them. And that really does require us to die to ourselves. It upends my schedule. It upends my life. It makes me vulnerable. The likelihood is that I will get hurt. It's a dangerous business making disciples. And yet the, that invitation has remained the same, and it continues to be the same all over the world. Wherever the gospel is flourishing is this business of people making disciples and of people laying down their lives for the sake of the cross. And that every time we try to make it safer, every time we try to mechanize things and remove ourselves from the equation by advertising the gospel, by large presentations, events, like God still will move even in the midst of those things, but yet the overwhelming declaration throughout the ages, the overwhelming declaration even in our age where the church is advancing and growing around the world is where the church is dangerous versus the comfortable powerlessness of Western Christianity. And so I want to invite you to go on that journey toward being the disciple of Jesus and laying down your life in a way that is 
absolutely radical in the minds of modern society, but absolutely essential to the old paths. Can I have our prayer team members go ahead and come on up? And so, if you're here this morning and, um, you know, you just uh, like wrestling with some of those things, with schedule, with life, with resources, uh, maybe you realize, I, I just really don't have any of those connections uh, with persons who are lost. I've, I've actually ended up insulated, isolated, uh, not intentionally, but I've just found myself there uh, uh, in that place uh, in the terms of trying to maybe even clear my head and clear some space. I've cut people out, uh, uh, and, uh, and it may be good for you to keep distance from some of those people from your past. I, I don't know how that affects you, but I do know that there are other people in need of what you have and, and of your story, that you are the perfect person to reach them, to bring the gospel to them. And so I just want to say, if that's you this morning, if you've come to the crescendo and, and you've reached the mountaintop and you've looked out over all that God is doing and you have found yourself amazed that to invite you to come back down the mountaintop and engage in the world that is full of demons and difficulty and the bickering and all those other things, and then you be the disciple of Jesus who's caring for the children in the midst of it, for those who are afar off, for those who do not know that you would be the hope and healing for the nations. Father God, I want to thank you for your son Jesus this morning, and as we uh, wrap up our time together, I pray, Father, that you would send us out from here, recommissioning us once again, that we would uh, lay aside the things that are entangling us, that trip us up, that uh, consume our energy, our time, our resources, and that we would think afresh about what does it mean to die to myself. Even if I've thought through this before and just found myself slowly gravitating back to the ways of the world, I, I just invite you to speak into my heart, into my life today where I am. Open my eyes to see and my heart to receive. And We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any other needs, come get prayer for those as well. Otherwise, please get your children from Kids Church. We'll see you next week. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.